welcome to episode 3 of the European Football Show on the World Football Index. I'm your host, Alan Feely, coming to you from Lisbon, and I'm joined today by Jasmine Baba in Hessen and yeah, John O'Sullivan in Galway. Uh, how are you, Jasmine? I'm all good. Um, plodding along in lockdown number two in Germany, um, seeing if we get tighter restrictions, but you know, I think it's pretty much the same where you guys are as well. Yeah, definitely. It's very much Groundhog Day at the moment, isn't it? Uh, John, how are you out there? All good? All good. Uh, full of the joys of being confined to the house. Although I might be going food shopping later, so that's very exciting. <laughs> very exciting expedition. What's what's the number one thing you go for when you're food shopping? What's the what you hit first? What's the kind of product that you're looking for the most? Because I go so infrequently, I go to the bakery in Lidl and I look for some focaccia, some chili focaccia to treat myself. Lovely, 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 lovely. Beautiful. Um, yeah, very interesting week of, week of football we had at least to uh, kind of dull the pain, you could say. Some big games in Italy, England, Spain and Germany. Um, very interesting storylines. Of course, John, we know your uh, Liverpool allegiances. Um, you must have been watching the Liverpool United game last night with uh, keen interest. Uh, what do you make of it? Liverpool are now fourth. Everton and Villa could potentially leapfrog them if they win their games in hand. Um, they've conceded 20 goals this season when they conceded 15 all of last season. Um, obviously, it's a strange league this year, but what do you make of Liverpool's situation and how do you value United's challenge? I think if you look at that game in isolation and you consider the fact that they had a centre-half pairing of Jordan Henderson and Fabinho, then you'd say like a nil-all draw against a team who were very potent away from home and have a lot of pace and attacking weaponry isn't that bad but it's just when you look in a broader context and you see it's um it's their third game in a row in the premier league without scoring you know and it was it was a really an opportunity to claw back you know united in the table and to give some confidence to a squad that kind of looked short of confidence at the moment so you know it's it's it, it wasn't the best result the performance was okay in patches but Unfortunately, the best opportunities that Liverpool had fell to the one player of the attacking Trident that you wouldn't want them to, Firmino. So uh, it, it was largely frustrating. United, you know, they looked they looked okay on the break at, at certain times, but uh, they'll definitely be happier with that result than Liverpool will. Yeah, certainly, certainly. I think the fact that United were almost disappointed to draw uh, at Anfield is kind of almost an ominous sign, isn't it? It's a sign that uh, their expectations are increasing somewhat, maybe. Uh, Jasmine, you mentioned uh, in our group chat the other day that 27% of the big six games this season, the traditional big six, um, have finished nil all. What do you think is the reasoning behind this and how do you think it's, this is kind of affecting the title race and the ability of teams to put together strong winning streaks? I think there's a number of reasons and I think with how the start of the season panned out, I mean... You had, even though it's not a big six game, Liverpool conceding how many goals to Aston Villa. And then you had the Man United-Tottenham match, which was just bizarre. I think teams have decided to go a more conservative route. They don't know what's going on with their players when it comes down to coronavirus if their teams have had an outbreak or will get an outbreak, it's all very kind of tentative almost. And then you're seeing like players almost trying to conserve their energy during big games now. There's no rest, there's no breaks. The only thing you can kind of rely on is rotation to get the best out of your squad. And we're seeing so many injuries across the clubs because of this that, we're just not seeing the quality that we're used to. We're not seeing as many breakthroughs as we're used to. But that being said, every time Liverpool, Man United is hyped up to be something, it ends up kind of like this. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of funny because even though, you know, the, the rivalry is also obviously very storied and it's kind of it's hyped, as you said, like throughout the years, but it's very, very rare that you have a situation where the two of them are actually first and second and actually in kind of almost a nascent title race, you could say. Um, and it kind of seems to be that way this season, at least. Um, Luke Shaw, John, what, what do you think of his performance? He's quite quite lauded um, after his uh, the way he played. Do you think that he kind of beginning to really show the best of himself this season? Definitely. And whether that's a coincidence after taking some time to recover from that horrendous leg break he had away to uh, PSV, it must have been about 
18 months ago or so now, or whether it's kind of putting a bit of fire under him because Alex Tellez has joined the club. You know, we probably won't answer that, but the fact of the matter is, yeah, like you said, he, uh, he's been superb lately. And when, whenever I've watched him, I guess as well, he's such a young player that, you know, their, their trajectories of development isn't always a straight line. It can be peaks and valleys, but right now he's been excellent. And, uh, once again, like he's done a brilliant job when coming up against Mohamed Salah. Salah has uh, rarely, if ever, got the better of him, either as a left-sided centre-half in a back three uh, in other games or as an orthodox left-back in, in this game. So uh, I think he's probably been one of United's most consistent players this season and fair play to him because, like, like I mentioned earlier, that leg break was absolutely horrendous and it would have taken a lot of mental strength to come back from that. I mean, even watching it at the time, it was hard to watch, so... Don't mind experiencing it. So uh, fair play to him. And I'm sure if the Euros do go ahead in the summer, uh, he'd fancy his chances of being England's number one left back ahead of uh, Ben Chilwell. Yeah, definitely. I think fair play to him because, you know, he's a kind of a figure of fun in many ways in terms of he can sometimes appear to be almost, you know, kind of like not, not overweight, of course, but maybe slightly kind of bigger than the average footballer. And a lot of, uh, you know, kind of social media trolls and stuff love uh, kind of pointing that out and kind of making fun of it. Like, so I think for a young player like him, so highly touted when he was uh, coming through, to kind of bounce back. And as you said, from that competition as well, is, is very impressive. I remember Roy Keane was asked once about uh, Juan Sebastian Veron when he came into the club. And he said, how do you feel when, you know, United went and signed a top-class central midfielder? And he said he welcomed it because, you know, for him, that's the way it should be, the big clubs where, you know, if you can't adapt to challenges and overcome challenges, then you shouldn't be there, you know? So I think new signings mightn't actually even just improve the starting eleven, but they'll elevate players who are already in the starting eleven to raise their game even more. So I think it's a, it's a good sign of his character, you could say. Um of course, also playing very well in this game in a red shirt was Thiago Alcantara. I think anyone who listens to this podcast for a significant period of time will know that I'm a big fan of Thiago. <laughs> very, very talented player. Um, one of the most pleasing footballers to watch for me in the world um, in terms of his passing ability, his dribbling ability, all that. And I think he said once that his body is Brazilian and all his kind of physical sensations are Brazilian, but his mind is Spanish. He represents Spain. He's born in Spain. Uh, from Brazilian parents and um, his brother plays for Brazil coincidentally. Uh, Jasmine, what do you think of his performance and what do you think of him as a player in general? Do you think he's really kind of raising the standards in this Liverpool team? I think he is a player that they needed um, and it's like his performance last night kind of showed why he was such a great addition to that Liverpool team. I mean, he's done it for years under Bayern Munich and been such a pivotal player that he's now showing what he can do in the Premier League as well. You normally get those kind of um, players that are, that come to the Premier League and struggle. That's not really been the case with him. Um, and it's not anything that I wouldn't expect from Thiago either. He's just, he is one of those world-class players. And the best thing about him is, as you said, he's got the best of both footballing cultures and both Brazilian and Spanish you can see both kind of typical attributes in both of those um countries that he plays with and I'm I'm really glad it, it was an incredible signing I want to see him more against low block teams um so trying to see a good run of games from him under Liverpool will be quite exciting to see and see if that will elevate Liverpool back more into the title race. Definitely, yeah. I think that um, his kind of ingenuity is very, very important, as you said, in kind of unlocking teams who are maybe setting up against Liverpool more defensively. Uh, John, like we all know you're a big fan of Thiago's as well. So in Twitter and stuff, you frequently, when he was out injured, were posting about you know various sightings of him and praying for the day that would eventually come where he'd be able to Return to Liverpool starting eleven after so long out injured. Um, what do you think of his performance and how important is he to this Liverpool team? I think it's strange because he's only just in the door, but he's already emerged as being vitally important because with Fabinho playing in defence and Naby Keita frequently injured, he's the only real midfielder that can take the game by the scruff of the neck in terms of ball progression and in terms of like technical prowess. And I think one very pleasing thing, and it it sounds very simple, but 
when you get players moving to the Premier League, especially in like their late 20s after playing abroad, there's always a question mark of whether, you know, they can adapt to the physicality and whether, you know, it'll phase them. Uh, you saw maybe the likes of, say, Bastian Schweinsteiger kind of struggling when coming to United at a similar age profile. But the way Thiago got stuck in yesterday and, you know, he was diving into tackles, he was he was getting, uh, he was going in for the ball with both feet. You know, he was probably lucky to avoid a booking, but uh, in a broader sense, to see him, to see him not be daunted physically, especially after an injury, like in the derby, is uh, is really good. Is a really good sign going forward because we all knew about his technical abilities, his way he can manipulate it through, you know, even the most packed midfields, his ability to find space, you know, the accuracy of his passing. So. To be able to see him like not be afraid to go in with some of these big physical players and go for the ball and you know be, try to impose himself physically, even though he's not the biggest man, I think is really encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. I think in, in Spanish football they call him a crack, and that's what he is. He really is kind of the man who makes things happen, and like his character is so impressive. Even when he left Barcelona, um, at the tail end of the Guardiola era, or just after the Guardiola era ended, sorry, he left because he wasn't valued in his eyes by the Barcelona hierarchy. So he went to Bayern Munich and kind of did something so few Spanish players do in terms of building a career there um, in a completely different footballing culture and kind of really thriving there, you know, and not kind of, you know, kowtowing to the kind of Barcelona ideal, which is very impressive, I think. It actually reminds me of Sergio Aguero when he joined Man City from Atletico Madrid. And he's one of those players who is world-class without a doubt. But when he comes to English football, it seems that the English media kind of wake up to his talents all the more because they're watching him for the first time in the flesh in kind of close quarters and familiar circumstances. I remember Aguero had a similar kind of thing when he started. I think it was against Swansea and won the football his first game or something back in 2010, 2011. Yeah. And uh, it was just phenomenal, I remember. But uh, with Bayern, they're obviously struggling without having Thiago in their midfield. David Alaba is also being linked with the move to Real Madrid at the end of his contract. Uh, but as we can see, they've kind of picked up a bit recently domestically and grown out some important victories over the weekend while the chasing pack kind of failed to, to shine and capitalise on the opportunity that was presented to them. Uh, Jasmine, what do you think about Bayern this season and how are they progressing as the weeks go by? Um, it was a very... It, it was a game of like two sides almost... And it was, on the eyes, it was very gritty. And it was probably one of those games Bayern needed. They needed to realise who they, almost who they were again. And that they are champions, like treble winners. And this is how champions win. They needed that. When Freiburg equalised, you could just kind of see everyone's frustrations come out. So for them to actually get a win, and Freiburg were coming into this game in as the most informed team, um, but as I said, their Freiburg's run were against easier teams, but it would have given them the confidence against Bayern, especially with their kind of inconsistency in two losses in a row in all competitions. But if you take in XG, that they were the well-performing team they could have scored a couple more but just basically on the eyes it was more gritty than the stats said um but yeah once again the top the only one other team to win in the top seven was Union Berlin so once again Bayern have kind of almost crowbarred a little bit of a gap between them and second place RB Leipzig who drew against Wolfsburg by Leverkusen are now without a win in four games Dortmund um, I guess I would say unlucky um, but you know it was down to a penalty between them drawing and winning and they missed that golden opportunity to make some of the ground up that we thought they would make up after their win against RB Leipzig. So once again, it's Bayern Munich just cracking open that small gap now. Yeah, it's a very kind of almost a familiar story, isn't it? That 
early season, if a kind of a giant stumbles, windows open for other teams to maybe mount a title challenge, you know, like, for instance, Real Sociedad in Spain. And then so often, uh, kind of, uh, things almost regress to the mean and the big guns kind of continue to uh, recover and kind of regain strength, isn't it? Like, it's kind of almost slightly disappointing in many ways for those sort of to see the underdogs thrive. But uh, I guess it's the way of European football these days. Yeah, and I guess it's now Bayern's got an almost easier run for the next few games and everyone else around them has slightly, are still playing each other. RB Leipzig midweek um, have Union Berlin. Dortmund have Bayer Leverkusen tomorrow. Um, so, yeah, it could be a good midweek and weekend two games where they end up another three points, another extra three-point gap on whoever else is next to them. Also in the Bundesliga, uh, Luka Jovic returned to Eintracht Frankfurt and made quite a bang. He's someone who's really kind of closely followed by the Spanish press because obviously he's still a Real Madrid player and he's unknown at uh, Eintracht um, at the end of the season. Uh, quite remarkably, he scored two goals in 28 minutes on his debut after scoring two goals in 18 months uh, for Real Madrid. So uh, there's obviously a lot of questions about Zinedine Zidane's squad manager at Santiago uh, Bernabeu. Um, what did you think of his return and how important do you think he could be for this uh, Frankfurt team as they progress forward? Um, Andre Silva is there as well, of course, who uh, is also playing quite well. How do you think that he can adapt to the new Frankfurt team? And do you think even more difficult for him to thrive than it was in his last spell, given how different the kind of setup of the team is I I don't think so I mean you can see from last night he fits into the team perfectly um I know I, I was laughing at the stat that he scored two goals and that was as much as many goals as he scored under Real Madrid because everyone was saying it last night and it always makes me laugh um but I think the only thing to be cautious of is that this is against Schalke um Schalke have conceded 42 goals in 16 games and um, it was very easy for him to make that impact. However, you know, coming back in to probably the league you know most, scoring two goals in a quick amount of time just to stamp your mark, it's going to be good for you. It's going to be good for the team, even if it is against relegation fodder. Eintracht Frankfurt as well, they were on a good run and it's not against um, bad teams. They've beat by Leverkusen and drew with Minch and Gladbach in their last five games. They're the, the league's informed team, unbeaten in five, four wins, one draw. Um, so if, you know, if Jovic comes and has that kind of impact for them and is that defining difference when they've got Freiburg next? You could see them go and make a charge for the European places, which I wouldn't have predicted before the season started. Yeah, I think the season is so strange that if teams can get to the midway points in some sort of good shape, the second half of the season could really be a game changer almost in how they kind of elevate up the table and kind of seize advantage of opportunities that are open. Um Speaking of Real Madrid, uh, they were knocked out of the Supercopa de España on Thursday night by Athletic Club, um, who are really kind of undergoing a bit of resurgence under uh, Marcelino, um, the former Valencia manager who was sacked after winning the Copa del Rey due to um, kind of behind-the-scenes politics at Valencia, who are not the most stable of clubs, it must be said. Um, But they faced Barcelona last night in the Supercopa de España final. Barcelona beating Real Sociedad on penalties, uh, thanks to a heroic performance from Marc-Andre uh, Ter Stegen. Um, and they managed to win 3-2 last night, quite remarkably. Uh, Barcelona blew two leads, thanks to two goals from Antoine Griezmann. And Athletic came back to win 3-2 in remarkable fashion, in extra time. Asia Villalibre scored a last-minute equaliser in the 90th minute to take the game to extra time. And then in extra time, Inaki Williams, uh, the Basque striker, scored an absolutely stunning goal. If you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend you go and look it up on YouTube. It really was a, a golazo, as they say in Spain. And Lionel Messi was also sent off, quite remarkably, in the final minute of the game, the 120th minute, because he punched uh, Azir Villabre in the back of his head. 
the first red card was club career, quite remarkably. And it was a, a big result in Spain because, you know, the Supercopa is not valued uh, as much as the Champions League or the La Liga or the Copa del Rey for obvious reasons. But given the strange nature of this season, both Madrid and Barca could have used a bit of an ego boost given that kind of, you know, fragile self-perception at the moment. So for Barca to lose in that manner was quite a blow. And I think Messi's reaction was one of frustration more than anything else. And uh, almost a harbinger of doom for Koeman's reign, you could say, given that despite the green shoots of recent times, they weren't able to kind of seize the, the title by the scruff of its neck when they had the chance and kind of win, get over the line. Um, Koeman still hasn't won a trophy since 2009, by the way, when he was at AZ Alkmaar, which is quite a feat when you think about it. Uh, John, you tweeted after the game your delight that Athletic got the, the victory. What, what, what are your thoughts on the situation in Spain at the moment? And are you happy that Athletic got to kind of get their names in the title? Oh, I'm delighted. Like you said, it's not the most prestigious of trophies. I mean, if Barcelona had won it, it would have been nothing more than maybe a kind of reaffirmation of of their kind of ego and a bit of a little bit of a confidence boost. But to a club like Athletic Club, like it's it's huge. Like they 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 can use the momentum and the confidence from that to really boost them in, towards the end of the season and to you know just just for something to show. Like they're one of the they're one of the biggest clubs in the league. They've they've never been relegated from the first division, if I if I recall correctly. So, like, this is a big, massive club who work within really kind of narrow parameters, and that's their club culture, of course. So, for them to even be competing at this level is fantastic. But to you know to win a trophy and to kind of add that little bit of silverware to all the other great stuff they do is is fantastic for them. And I was absolutely delighted. Um, yeah, Barcelona, they seem a bit flimsy mentally, like to throw away two leads like that. And then Messi to get sent off is probably indicative of it. They, they, they're they a little bit fragile, I gather. And I, that's probably, you know, as well, it kind of comes from Koeman. He couldn't surely be uh, confident that he'll definitely be in the job by the start of next season. So I'd say there's a lot of uncertainty around the club, even in terms of the presidential elections and in the back room. So... I think that kind of transmitted through to the through to the players and, and through to Messi. So uh, for them, it will obviously be disappointing because there's a very good chance that they could end this season trophyless. And you know, this isn't a vintage Barcelona team, but they still have the caliber of player that you think that you know they should be contenders to win something. But uh, I think the main thing really is just uh, delight for uh, for Athletic Club and. Valabre was playing. What was he playing with it? Like uh, a tuba after the game or something in celebration? A trumpet, yeah, a trumpet. Remarkable. Yeah, which is brilliant to see. I don't think I've ever seen a footballer uh, play an instrument on the pitch in celebration before. So that was cool. But yeah, just just really, really happy for Athletic Club, a special, special club. Yeah, it was disappointing that there was no fans, of course, because that was the kind of game that you'd really love to see fans at. And uh, yeah, as you said, Villalibre was celebrating with a trumpet in the semicircle in the centre circle, sorry, um, post-game with the rest of his teammates, real kind of jubilation. But it's interesting because, you know, Athletic sacked guys like Garitano after they beat Elche 1-0 a few weeks back. Um, and they were kind of middling along, really. They were in a good position. They were mid-table, but they could be doing so much more given the kind of size of the club and the expectations of the club, especially when Real Sociedad were doing quite well comparatively. They're great rivals. Um, but yeah, Marcino's a very, very uh, intelligent and smooth operator. I think he's really going to get the best out of this team. It was evident in the way that they kind of, you know, won clever fouls in various places, used their height very well, used their set-piece ability very well. He got the best out of Raul Garcia, who can be a lethal striker in his day, and also Iker Munian, who's, you know, long been touted as kind of one of the next great talents of European football. He never quite hit that kind of echelon, you could say, but... He's still a very talented boy, and he was very, very good yesterday. Really pivotal, you could say. Um, but yeah, not good for Barcelona, to be honest. Um, their presidential elections are delayed until the end of March, meaning they can't sign anybody this January. Um, so the kind of green shoots that had emerged under Koeman are beginning to look a bit more ominous now, you could say. And the vibe is changing slightly. But uh, in fairness, Ter Stegen was superb. He really was fantastic in the semi-final against Real Sociedad. He single-handedly dragged Barcelona through. Jasmine, what, what's the thing about him? And how's he viewed in Germany? You know, obviously he doesn't play for a German club like Manuel Neuer did. And it's kind of their rivalry is well documented through the years. 
But do you think he's done enough to be Germany's number one now? Oh, that's a question. Um, probably, I feel like as soon as a player leaves Germany, they're kind of dead in the German media's eyes unless they do something <laughs> horrific. Um, and like, I have not heard anything really about, um, for instance, Timo Werner or Kai Havertz since they've moved to the Premier League, um, mainly because they've not really done anything either. But you know, the German, let's say, heads of football um, who make those decisions, I think they kind of don't like to give people who leave Germany that kind of chance. I mean, it will have to take a pretty bad showing for Manuel Neuer to start thinking about anyone else as the number one spot. I think it's kind of dictated through how they view even their managerial roles. I mean, uh, Yogi Loh has not really looked kind of enthusiastic with his Germany squad and it does keep on becoming these loud conversations on what they're going to do next. Um, But Manuel Neuer is still very much number one over here and I think that would remain at least until... Well, we'll see if the Euros go ahead this year, but um, definitely probably until the World Cup 2022, unless we see a massive failure from him and a consistent failure from Manuel Neuer. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that. Um, In Italy, some interesting results over the weekend. Uh, Inter levelled with Milan in points, in terms of points. They beat Juve 2-0 quite remarkably. Uh, funnily enough, before the game, Arturo Vidal, who of course spent four years at Juve, uh, was giving Giorgio Chiellini a hug and he kissed the Juventus badge and it went quite viral on uh, social media. And then, of course, typically he scored the opening goal as into 1-2-0. Um, not a great result for Juve and not a great result for Andrea Pirlo. Um, they're quite off the pace in Serie A this season. Milan leading the way, of course, and now Inter drawing level. Um what are your thoughts on the Italian uh, title race, John? And what, what do you think about Andrea Pirlo in general? Um, this kind of recent trend of you know former iconic players being given big managerial roles is kind of maybe most dramatically underlined by Pirlo, who kind of you know famously took control of the first team at Juve something like ten days after taking control of the under-23s with no previous coaching experience. Um, so, what do you think about both the Italian title race and also this trend of giving? Uh, young coaches big breaks because of their playing status I, will, I think firstly the Italian title race is fascinating there's there's such a little gap between maybe four to five teams I think Syria because the way of Juventus have been dominating it was often kind of derided as very uncompetitive and to a certain degree that was that was correct because one team constantly won it but underneath that it has always been very competitive you've had some excellent inter teams some excellent napoli teams milan teams all all fighting it out for maybe that second spot roma of course and lazio too so there's a lot of very good teams there and it'll be fascinating this season it'll be nice to see milan winners i think but uh I think there's a massive pressure on inter to win if they've recruited heavily they've spent a lot of money and a lot of the money they've spent has been on very experienced players with the intent purpose of winning now, not winning down the line. So I think there is a there is a major pressure on them to win now. And uh, last night was a brilliant re- result for them, obviously. And as to Pirlo, I struggle to see Juventus' logic with that because they're putting a club legend into a really unenviable spot because if he doesn't win, he'll be, he'll be kind of hammered as his failure. But... I mean, he's a rookie coach. He has 10 days of experience coaching the under-23s before he's hoist into this job full of big egos and players that are used to winning. So part of me thinks, well, what do they expect? I mean, you, you wouldn't put a young player, for example, into a team and expect them to hit the ground running and to be this brilliant talent straight away. And I'm sure it's, you, can, you can apply the same logic to coaches and it seems to be part of a wider um, a wider movement across European football to give like these ex players big jobs. Frank Lampard is is another example of it. And I think everybody is looking for the next Guardiola, but uh, Guardiola is definitely the exception and not the rule. And really, what what it does for me is it makes me feel bad for a lot of these coaches who have worked their way up from 
from the lower leagues or from underage teams and who have, you know, cut their teeth accordingly and have uh, have operated within really strict budgets and parameters and have done fantastic jobs. And, you know, they don't even get the chance to interview and the job is putting a plate for these ex-players whose only real qualification is the fact that they, in inverted commas, know the club, whatever that means. So uh, it, it, it's a strange, it's a strange kind of movement across Europe as a whole. And uh, I, I, for one, wouldn't be an advocate of it. A lot of people were saying, for example, let Steven Gerrard replace uh, Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool. Now, in fairness to Gerrard, he has gone out and he's getting experience at other clubs and in uh, in, in pressure situations. But uh, I think you need to earn your stripes and to be in the conversations for these big jobs. And I don't think Pirlo has done it. Not to say he won't, but I think certainly he should be afforded a grace period where he kind of has to, you know, he has to learn a few lessons. Yeah, I think it's a very salient point. I think that, you know, young managers who are, Iconic players are being selected because of kind of two things, as you said, the Guardiola effect, which is kind of ludicrous because Guardiola had earned his stripes to a degree in terms of his years spent traveling across Latin America and Europe, uh, learning from great coaches. Uh, he was prepping to be a coach since he was thirty, you know, and then he also had a very successful stint with Barcelona B in the Segunda B, taken into the Segunda, uh, and also that coincided with. The golden generation of players who really revered Guardiola, like Xavi, Andres Iniesta, Lina, Messi, um, who weren't who were being used, of course, in Barcelona, but they weren't given the principal roles that Guardiola gave them when he took charge. So it was kind of a a perfect storm, you could say, in terms of their success. And then on the other side of things, there is the fact that these guys are, you know, quite recognizable to kind of younger fans. They're kind of quite iconic. Um, you know, Pierre Lowe is a very stylish guy. Can't you can't knock that? You know, very nice beard, nice haircut, that kind of thing. Look good in a suit. I think he suits the Juventus uh, self perception more than the fag smoking Maurizio Sarri. You know, so uh, I think that makes sense to a degree. Um, what are your thoughts, Jasmine, on this kind of you know this trend of youngsters getting big roles, maybe beyond before their time? And maybe, I guess you could say, Mikel Atera falls in that category, uh, even though he helped learned his trade under Guardiola. Yeah, Arsenal is his first senior job in management. What do you think about Arteta, Pirlo, and of course, someone I know who's dear to your heart, Frank Lampard? <laughs> oh, God. Um, I think that there's an argument to be had, really. I mean, th- some of these ex-players are should be given these roles and are capable of doing them. I mean, I I think there's a very big difference between a Mikel Arteta and an Andrea Pirlo, um, whereas Arteta has been, had been doing his coaching badges throughout his time when he was out injured and, you know, really committed to that. And for Perlo, I, I honestly don't know what Juve were kind of doing when they thought, yeah, let's do that. Everyone else is doing that. This could work. Because it doesn't seem to be completely working. It, I mean, both coaches do have similarities. They're both going to have to learn on the job. I mean, there's no better way to prepare for it than being chucked into the deep end. But you'd think they would have taken a more conservative approach, especially in... Juventus where you know they're renowned for winning being the most superior one in the league and we can and in this kind of world that we're in at the moment where we're not sure what's going to go on with the leagues because of corona and kind of finances and all of that for them to go completely left field and to pick him up is still baffling but you know that there are coaches which are qualified who were ex-players to do that job um and said Mikel Arteta I know I'm not a fan of Frank Lampard but even he was given a chance and had a season with Derby before moving up to Chelsea I think that's still the wrong decision because he doesn't have any proper philosophy or proper working of the squad and he's ruined some he looks like he's ruining some really talented players from the German league at the moment. Um, But we will see there's, there's two parts that you've got the ex player manager and you're right. Not all of them will be Guardiola. Not all of them will have that luck or that finesse, but then you're getting the new crops of 
coaches which have come and will get their chance from, you know, under 18 leagues and being promoted. Um, I know Julian Nagelsmann was a player, but he didn't have any um, appearances because of um, injuries and turned it all into coaching instead. So you're going to get more of these younger coaches that haven't necessarily played but will work out a bit more like Julian Nagelsmann. And that's going to be a lot more interesting when it's probably, I wouldn't say it's a 50-50 split at the moment, but when we see more of that 50-50 split, it's going to be very interesting who clubs look at and who they promote. Because I think with the kind of experiment going on now, I think they're going to turn to those younger coaches who have committed their life to coaching rather than the ex-players. That's a very good point. Um, I think Graham Potter is someone I like a lot too. Brighton, he earned his badges in uh, Scandinavia. And that's where he learned his trade before returning to England and kind of getting a a break there. Um, But I think, you know, for Everton, for instance, I was struck by the job Carlo Ancelotti has done. Um, They played uh, Wolves on Tuesday night and he lined up with a pretty unorthodox formation. Gilfie Sigurdsson and James Rodriguez were kind of the the two false nines, you could say. There was no recognised striker in the squad because Dominic Calvert-Lewin is quite uh, burnt out after being relied upon for so long. And Cheng Tosin isn't fully fit after his long injury. And they won. And I think Carlo was testament to a coach who just knows what he's doing and adds value to the teams he coaches. Because I think a lot of people undervalue the role that a good coach can play in a team. Um, and they think that it's almost, you know, he's there to manage personalities, manage egos, and that the players do their thing. But I think in reality, a good coach or a great coach in the case of Ancelotti actually has almost a game-changing um, contribution to make to the team. Um, what do you think about this, John? And what, what do you think about Frank Lampard as well at Chelsea, the job he's doing there? Well, from a lot of accounts, it's Jody Morris who really runs the training and maybe a lot of the, tech, the tactical side of things. And Lampard is more like an overseer. And I'd call that kind of the Alex Ferguson approach, whereas, you know, Ferguson would be more like someone who would set the standards and who would organize the club, maybe maybe administratively even, and then the coaching would be left down to their assistants. But like the, the, the really, the balance at Chelsea isn't quite right. I mean, looking at them against Fulham, I was just thinking, what what's their plan? I, I'm not sure what kind of team they want to be. Are they a counter-attacking team? Are they a team that looks to play quickly? Are they a possession team? And uh, I think when Lampard first took over, the first few months, you could see like a residual Sarriism, I call it, to the team, whereas they were still playing like a Maurizio Sarri team, even though Lampard was their coach because, you know, they had been they had been drilled so extensively by Sarri for the year previous. But since then, they've kind of just become like a kind of like an amorphous glob of a team. They're not really one thing or another. And it's just more like when they win, it's because of an individual doing something out of the ordinary and you know they have enough firepower and players to do that on a semi-regular basis but in terms of like having an identity I I don't see what theirs is but you're so right about Ancelotti in that not every team has to be this dogmatic in the way they approach things and the shape they play and their style you know there is there is room and scope for flexibility there and I think Ancelotti is probably one of the best exponents of that in world football his he seems to like strip a lot of complexity away from football, and I think a lot of players would like that. I mean, it didn't work out so well at Bayern Munich after Guardiola because I guess it was just a squad that were very used to be micromanaged. But you know, at Everton and at Napoli, I think he's got a he's got a, a fair bit of success with just kind of just playing to the players' strengths and making it more about them than it is about him. He isn't one of these tub thumping guys who is very clear on his uh, in very commas philosophy he's just someone who uh, someone who wants to win and he's going to take what he thinks is the best steps to doing that and sometimes it's you know it's just it's as simple as playing to the strengths of the players you have available to you absolutely yeah yeah it really is it's kind of a, almost a, not a dumbing down but as you said a simplification um i think the ferguson point is very good too because you know he was very much an overseer and very much kind of the, man, the manager as opposed to the coach, you could say. And what he would do as well was constantly refresh his coaching staff so that no ideas would ever get stale. 
Um, so, you know, bringing in Carlos Kuros, for instance, who gone to be a manager in his own right and other kind of, you know, quite talented coaches. Um, so I think it's difficult to do that in the modern game because you don't have the longevity that Ferguson was uh, gifted, maybe. Um, but there's definitely something to it, I think. Um, staying with Chelsea, uh, as Jasmine alluded to, they've kind of brought in a lot of talent from the Bundesliga. Uh, Timo Werner, Kai Havertz, for instance, who haven't really flourished in the way you'd expect them to. And today, according to a David Ernstein um, exclusive, uh, Chelsea are looking for Erling Haaland next season, next summer. Uh, Haaland's contract with Borussia Dortmund includes a clause where he can leave for 75 million euros in the summer of 2022. Um, but there's no such clause this summer. So I think Real Madrid is the preferred destination. Um, and I think Man City and Man United are also interested. But they'd be more inclined to move for him next summer than this summer. So Chelsea's idea is to steal a march in them by going for him this summer. Uh, John referred to Chelsea, Chelsea's spending habits, spending strategy to be like drunks throwing money in a strip club. And um, <laughs> what, what, what do you think about how um, they've used uh, their young talents from the Bundesliga, specifically Timo Werner and Kai Havertz? And how do you think Erling Haaland would adapt to uh, Frank Lampard's team? I don't think anyone can adapt to Frank Lampard's team it's just not a team it's it's just it is the most I, I don't know it's just disgusting at times it really is like they've bought all of this talent and they can't even look like they can't even look to dominate someone battling relegation down to 10 men it, it's on it Inferno was always a weird choice for Chelsea of where they were at and what players they had at the moment and how he played at RB Leipzig he even though he's so I don't know what the word is because he was very clinical in the Bundesliga but he had these times where he didn't look strong enough he didn't he wasn't always consistent, almost this like kind of inconsistency to Timo Werner's play. And out of all the English teams that he could have joined, I thought Chelsea was the worst one for him. That wouldn't break him into the league properly. And these struggles of his at Chelsea doesn't look too much of a surprise to me. I'm more surprised about how they're ruining Kai Havertz, which again is such a talent he's a game changer and they've kind of nullified him in this team um and I think the Haaland I think that it's true I think they will go for Haaland because they think oh you know Timo Werner hasn't worked we have to change that and that's Chelsea's kind of way of dealing with things throw money at it um but I Dortmund, even with that clause I don't think Dortmund will be willing to change anything at the moment um, before they get in a new manager. Um, I don't think Terzic is going to be their flick. And it, it's kind of similar of the Brandt rumours to Arsenal. They're not willing to change a team in the su- uh, from now to the summer until they have a new manager in mind who and what talents that manager wants to keep hold of and how they're going to elevate themselves for a title race, really. Yeah, well, actually, what do you think about Reiner Jesus? Um, he's another player that the Madrid Press are kind of concerned about because he was loaned to Dortmund, hasn't got very much game time at all, hasn't started a single game uh, in Germany. Um, kind of a very young, highly touted Brazilian player. Um, what's the story there? I think he's close to maybe leaving Dortmund and going somewhere else in the second half of the season, like Take Kubo did, for instance, leaving Villarreal to go to Hitafe. Um, what are your thoughts on him and why hasn't he made it in the Bundesliga, do you think? I think there's there's a number of reasons and I, I completely forgot he was at Dortmund, to be fair, <laughs> and which doesn't spell well. There, there's sometimes kind of teething problems when you just join a bigger club like that. And it's not always the club's fault, it's not always the player's fault. And I think it's something that has gone wrong here that it's just wasn't really a good fit um plus with Dortmund's kind of other issues at the moment they haven't really gone too far from what they're used to and they see like their big front three working they're going to stick to that no other 
the only other person they want to rely on is Makoku. Um, and I think that's just the way they want to play at the moment, which is bad luck for him. It's yeah, strange because, you know, it's not like youngsters aren't getting a chance at Dortmund. Gio Reyna, Jude Bellingham, you know, Jadon Sancho in the past few years. And players do get the chance, they're good enough. So it's quite strange that uh, he isn't getting that chance. But I guess, you know, it's quite a different culture to adapt to coming from Brazil. He didn't play much for Flamengo when he was there. Uh, didn't get any game time with uh, Real Madrid. So it's maybe a big kind of culture shock for him. It's just also um, that there's been quite a few stories, um, not in this one, but especially from the Southern American leagues going into Germany. It's not only a culture shock, but the weather. They can't adapt to the weather very well <laughs> either. Um, it sounds like a you know, a blase thing to say, but some of the Southern Americans that have tried to make it in Germany do struggle because of the whole different climate as well. So it's just probably something down to training. They've not kind of fit right. And if it's a little bit like the Saliba um, thing going on at Arsenal, it's just a youngster that hasn't made an impact in the way that the club want. Yeah, it's certainly difficult, I think, especially for a Carioca, a Rio de Janeiro. Young fella going to the Black Forest to Germany in the mixed winter mustn't be easy, you know, especially with coronavirus going on. Um, but to be fair, one player who has adapted quite well, swapping Lisbon uh, for Manchester, which is also two very different cities, is uh, Ruben Diaz. He's really performed well at Man City since he came in. He was lauded beforehand as kind of a very competitive, tenacious character, and he's combined really, really well with John Stones, the heart of their defence. Uh, Man City being, as you mentioned last week, kind of quietly progressing this season and building towards a real title charge, and they're now second in the league table. Um, the partnership of Stones and Diaz has conceded one goal in the last 10 games only. And uh, after uh, Man City's game last night, uh, the 4 0 defeat uh, of um, Palace. Palace. Palace, uh, sorry. Uh, Graham Soon has compared uh, John Stones to Alan Hansen, which is quite high praise because Halson was a one of the premier uh, ball-playing centre-backs of the 1980s, you could say. Uh, John, what are your thoughts on this partnership um, and on Man City in general? Uh, do you think their defensive solidity is kind of an, a, a relatively new uh, development and that it's kind of a, a sign that they're adapting to the challenge they've proposed? Yeah, certainly it is. Uh, you mentioned the start earlier, about 27% of the big six games this season ending nil all and the City drew it all with uh with United in their derby, and uh, they drew one apiece with Liverpool in, in that game. And in both of those games, kind of in the second half, they really didn't push forward as much in the fear of being counted on. And I think that kind of pragmatism is a is a new element to their game. They've added to this season. I mean, that was always their Achilles' heel in years gone by. They would dominate the ball and dominate the territory, but they'd be quite susceptible especially when Fernandinho was taken away from midfield, they'd be quite susceptible to the counter-attack. So in that regard, they've really improved the season. They're not scoring as much, but they're so, so solid. And when you look at their goals conceded column, five of those came against Leicester City at home. And was it three that were penalties? It was either two or three. Yeah, yeah, quite a few of those were penalties. Now I can't remember if it was two or three because I got confused on the number before as well. Yeah, because it's just such a ridiculous amount of penalties in one game. It's like kind of nearly frazzles your brain. Um, but yeah, they've been unbelievably solid. And I think that's going to be the bedrock upon which, at this stage anyway, upon which they win the title. I mean, it's hard to make predictions in this of all seasons. And they still have to go to Anfield. And, you know, they still have they still have a few uh, bigger games left, of course, with, with all the fixtures left to come. So it's difficult to make any kind of predictions. But if... If I they keep going at the current rate, I, I can't see past them. They're just they're just so solid, and I think this is about without Laporte. Laporte was often mentioned as being uh, as being their best defender, and after you know splurging on severally highly highly uh, highly priced defenders over the course of the last few years, they finally appear to have landed on a very good one in Ruben Diaz, and this is the best I think I've ever seen uh, John Stones defend. Uh, Graeme Sunez compared to Alan Hansen and I can un- I can understand the similarities even if you know Hansen was probably in a league of his own for a long time but uh, F- Stones finally looks like he's going to fulfil the potential that he showed at Everton uh, for a long time a man said my impression of Stones was that he was only the kind of defender that could play for a club like Man City he was kind of niche in that 
He was so good at what you call the extras, like in terms of being able to bring the ball out from the back, his passing, his vision, but his fundamentals, like his positioning, his awareness, his aerial ability were maybe lacking somewhat. But uh, in the last in the last run of games, in fairness, he seems to have matured an awful lot. And maybe maybe it's just a case of defenders kind of take more, more time to reach uh, to reach their peak years than, than in other positions. But as an Everton fan, I'd be interested to kind of hear your perspective on it and whether or not you thought that he could have reached these levels. Yeah, well, I remember years ago, I think it was the first Martinez season, um, we were playing, everything we were playing at the uh, at Goodison Park and Stones did a Cruyff turn in the penalty area to get away from a opposing forward. And there was an audible groan from the, the park end, which is maybe, you could say, one of the more conservative elements of the Everton faction. And uh, they were, he turned and he actually kind of sh- shushed and made a kind of a calming gesture towards them. Didn't go down too well with the Everton supporters. Uh, but I guess it kind of hints at his kind of personality and his ability and his belief in his ability of playing the ball. Um, but I think he's definitely adapted well this season. I think that Ruben Diaz, well, first of all, it's a good idea for Man City to actually buy a centre-back as opposed to constantly spying left and right-backs. Um, and second of all, the fact that Diaz is kind of of a different profile to Stones, he's more kind of, his game is based on defending first and foremost and then playing the ball. And he's kind of, he, he lives off his aggression and his ability to win challenges, whereas Stones is much more of a ball player. But I think Stones has managed to temper that because... At Everton, for instance, he was playing under Roberto Martinez, which was quite a kamikaze team. And it was only, it worked in the beginning because you had this core of the David Moyes team combined with Martinez's attacking flair. But as things developed, um, we kind of, everything kind of lost that core, you could say, the defensive core. And uh, obviously it resulted in Martinez losing his job. Um, but yeah, I think that he's definitely performing very, very well this season. Uh, and in line with a rejuvenated Manchester City, um, it seems. But uh, Jasmine, what do you think about the loss of Mikel Arteta to Man City? And do you think that you know the appointment of uh, Juan Malio, one of uh, Guardiola's chief influences when he was learning his badges as a coach, could that work in a similar way to the way that you know we mentioned? You know, Ferguson was consistently refreshing his coaching staff. Do you think that? the initial loss of Arteta to Arsenal last season has been tempered somewhat by maybe a new influence? I think that could be well it. I think Man City looked a little bit lost at the start after Mikel Arteta had left um, on top of that. And we were all kind of, you know, giving it a bit to Man City that they had lost their way and Arteta was probably the next God knows whatever. But um, as I said last week, it just, they have seemed to kind of Locked down a new idea, and it, out of all the things happening in the, like the last year, I wouldn't have had John Stones reemerging in City as an amazing defensive partnership. I wouldn't have had that down for one. So something's obviously gone on and behind the scenes, and they've definitely dealt with the problems Pep seemed to just kind of get stuck in a rut with, especially with um, defending in the Premier League. The fact that they have the best defence in the league is, I just wouldn't have had that down either. And that's how you know they're going to be potential title challengers. I know that the top of the league is really, really close together, but they've only lost one game in 25 in all competitions. They lost 25. It's, I, I, don't, I w- didn't have this after, you know, early in the season. I thought they were still stuck in their old ways, but. Um, I, I think refreshing coaching teams might be the way to go if you are one of those kind of stuck in a rut teams. And it's done wonders for Pep. Maybe Mikel Arteta leaving to become something else has really, really helped him in a way he didn't know. I guess it's kind of funny that maybe this grit is something maybe, you know, Roy Keane, for instance, is often lambasted for constantly referring to players' moral fibre and their character and their attitudes. and in a way that's kind of almost, you know, dumbing down the kind of technical side of the game. But maybe that's actually quite important in this kind of, you know, strange season, as we've mentioned before, that players, teams that have this grit, you know, for instance, Atletico Madrid beat Sevilla uh, during the week, 2-0 at the Wanda Met- Metropolitano, which is a very, very big result for them because they had been knocked out of the Copa del Rey by Segunda B-side Cornella uh, in the previous match day. 
Um, Napoli won 6 in Fiorentina thanks to a stunning performance from uh, Lorenzo Insignia uh, at the new you know, Stadio Diego Armando Maradona. But I guess the two things those teams have in common is their coaches, you know, Diego Simeone and Gennaro Gattuso, two very, you know, renowned hard men of the game, you could say, very tenacious characters. Do you think, John, that, you know, given the lack of coaching that can be done this season, having a tenacious coach like that with maybe who puts defensive stability first could actually really benefit teams? Oh, absolutely. And what you said about Roy Keane is true. I mean, I think he references it so much. It kind of goes into the realms of kind of empty platitudes and cliches. But you've never seen a team win a title that had a bad mentality or a bad attitude. So on that score, he's absolutely right. And when someone like him, who kind of was a main architect of a winning culture in a successful dressing room over the course of like 10 or 15 years talks about that, then, you know, you'd have to listen because he, he does know what he's talking about. He knows... He knows what these winning dressing rooms are all about. So uh, on that score, I think he's correct. And then what you're saying is definitely correct because this isn't going to be a season where it's about flowing football or, you know, about the team with the best attacking ideals wins. There's There's just too much of a bulk of games to play to have the freshness of mind and freshness of legs to be able to play like that. So I think it will likely be the teams who were able to dog it out, who were good from set pieces and who, in the case of Manchester City and Atletico Madrid, are are very good defensively. I mean, I think in terms of an aesthetic point of view, the level of football has been down across the board in all leagues in Europe. But like that's not, uh, that's not a criticism of coaches or players. That's just a reality of the stupidly concertina schedule that they all have to operate in. And I think that's something that's probably going to last until about 2023 because, of course, all of these tired and jaded players, well, a lot of them are going to have to play in the Euros if they go ahead in in the upcoming months. And then, of course, there's a Winter World Cup in 2022. So I think for the the next couple of seasons, at least, this is going to be the reality of football. It's, It's going to be dogged and it's going to be about maybe the teams with the best defensive organization and the best kind of routines at set pieces who uh, who prevail. Yes, certainly. I think I read an interview with David Beckham yesterday, actually, and he was talking about the influence Keane had in that team. And he kind of said that, you know, he was never bothered by the external speculation about, you know, what he was wearing and the way he was dressing and, you know, the red carpets he was going to with his, his wife, Victoria, and all that kind of stuff, because he knew that, you know, in the dressing room, Roy Keane and Ferguson, respected him and Roy Keane would be the first to say that I don't care what he does in, off the pitch he delivers on the pitch and in the training ground every single day of the week and I think like Beckham obviously was a really kind of ruthless consistent you know pursuer of excellence uh, somebody who's maybe not quite like that you could say is Mesut Ozil who's of course departed Arsenal um, for Fenerbahce in Turkey. Jasmine what are your thoughts on Mesut Ozil? He sparked kind of a, a bit of a battle for the number 10 shirt at Arsenal. I think there was an interesting tidbit in uh, David Orenstein's column this morning in the Athletic that Lacazette and uh, Aubameyang are about fighting for it. Uh, Emil Smith-Rowe also was in with the shout. Uh, but for commercial realities, maybe a, a signing will get it because it's very difficult to, for a player to change number midway through the season. And Arsenal are in the market for an attacking playmaker. What do you think about Arsenal's hunt for an attacking playmaker and also the fact that they just parted ways with one who was quite good in his day? I mean, there's loads of rumours on why Meza Ozil didn't play or this and that, but I think we just have to take a moment and be like, he was he was probably one of the first big players of a long, long while that Arsenal signed. He was a World Cup winner. He was from Real Madrid. And he, I was watching some of the clips when it was announced that we signed him and it just made me feel a bit sad. Like it was such a good day and everyone was so happy with that. And he did give the team something they hadn't had for a while. And so it's kind of sad that he's gone. It, I mean, teams need to move on and it it was a good decision at the end. Um, and, that number 10 shirt I, I, on the form of both Lacazette and Aubameyang right now, they don't deserve the number 10 shirt. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's a bit harsh, but they've been less 
less than perfect all season, so I can say that. Um, yeah, it looks like it should be a new signing. I mean, you know how Arsenal does transfer business. It's chaotic and um, is very hard to nail down who they're going to get, if they're going to get them. We saw with um, Alwa during the summer transfer window that it didn't really go to plan. Um, I I think Bundia, I mean, Bundia is in with a shout. I think he would be a good fit. Or even though Mill Smith Rowe is showing such talent at that kind of number 10 role and just playmaking for the squad, they can't rely on him all the time. And they need someone a little bit more experienced. And I think Bundio might be the one to go for in terms of would fit in well in the league and also has that experience. Um, so hopefully he'll be getting, uh, maybe hopefully, maybe we go for Alva again. I don't know. Um, but someone new in that number 10 shout would be quite quite nice for this transfer window. Yeah, I guess Emi Bendia is a player who, you know, always performed well for Norwich. And if he's Premier League experience, of course, and if you put him alongside better players, you'd imagine he'd raise his level. Um, but for you, John, what are your thoughts on Ozil? I, I think Ozil was a fantastic player initially at Arsenal, but he's like a remnant of a bygone era. It's like the piece that you wrote about uh, Juan Roman Roquelme uh, for the legal lowdown. Um, I just think that kind of player where the whole team delegates a creative spark to this one player. I think football has kind of moved past that because it's as simple as if you stop the playmaker, then you stop the team. So coaches look to have a lot more variety in the way they attack and the way they can hurt teams. So I think Ozil has been a victim of that, especially then because if he's not really producing on the ball, then he doesn't offer loads off the ball as well. And in the era where high pressing is kind of in vogue, then, you know, you kind of couldn't really have a passenger off the ball like that. But uh, certainly an unbelievably talented player and so good to watch. I remember him in that Real Madrid team where the season, I think they scored 121 league goals under Mourinho one season and if you watch back the highlights montage it's just basically Ozil through balls Ozil through balls every goal seems to emanate from an Ozil through ball and uh, he carried that form onto Arsenal for a certain amount of time and until it just went pear-shaped for him there I mean there's lots of rumours as to why but uh, he certainly has been a passenger there for the last 18 months to two years and hasn't really played at all Um, he's a lifelong Fenerbahce fan apparently so it's kind of nice for him to probably finish off his career at that club. Um, I don't know how they've made it happen in terms of finances, but uh, that, that's a story for a different day. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how he does in the Turkish League. Yeah, certainly, certainly. I think it's interesting. I think heard Michael Cox saying the other day that uh, the number 10 is a hard balance to strike because, you know, when they're playing in service of a team and within a team, that's when they're most potent but if they're given too much creative freedom they can often especially in the modern game they can often kind of get away with themselves for instance he mentioned you know how Diego Maradona while being the most talented footballer who ever lived arguably was always very much part of a team and he played for his teammates and then another example he gave was Wesley Schneider of that Inter team with Mourinho and how before the World Cup when Mourinho was there winning the treble with Inter he was very much in service to the team he was putting threw balls on plates for the strikers to score. After the World Cup, he came back, his head kind of changed a bit and he became more of a uh, kind of a kind of trying to score goals for himself, taking shots from ridiculous angles. And I think maybe some of that's to do with Ozil as well in terms of at Arsenal, the way things went, he became too important for his own good and wasn't able to work in service to the team in the way he probably should have to get the best out of his talent. But uh, we're just to finish off in Arsenal, Jasmine, they're playing Newcastle tonight. I know it's a a fixture that's kind of significant for you in the last year at least yeah um the last emirates game i was at was against newcastle where it was very dogged for the first half and then we won 4-0 which was also meza Ozil's last goal for the club so um quite weird to have that experience of both meza Ozil's goal and also a full emirates stadium yeah most certainly it'd be an interesting game for sure though it's interesting 
you guess a bounce back from the recent poor run form? It's it's just the I I don't know why, but we've we've been doing okay. <laughs> I don't want to jinx it. I mean, three wins on the in a row, and then top that with a draw, a nil nil draw to Crystal Palace. But if anyone's seen Crystal Palace's form against Arsenal, like a draw is normally what usually happens. Roy Hodgson has us down to a T every game. Yeah, with Roy Hodgson, in fairness to him, like we were talking earlier about young coaches and old coaches, he's certainly an old coach, but he's a very, very wily, wily dog, isn't he? Like he knows what he's doing and he can certainly add value to a team. And maybe Wilfred Zaha will have something to, to prove, you know? Against, uh... They have the most entertaining player in the league, I think, in Eber Eze, apart from maybe Alan Samaxman. I'm not saying he's one of the better players in the league, but he is just dynamite to watch. Most certainly. Love watching him. Yeah. But uh, anyway, that's that's it for today, guys. We've we've uh, run out of time, but uh, it was a pleasure having the both of you on as always. Um, do you have anything you want to plug uh, before I let you go? Any, and uh, of course, you can tell us your Twitter handles too, so people can follow you. Uh, Jasmine first, perhaps. Um, yep, nothing really on my work schedule right now. Um, I am. I did write a piece about Union Berlin the other day, so. If you go to my Twitter at underscore Jasmine Barber, my Medium page is in my bio. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. John? Uh, just follow me on NotoriousJOS at Twitter. Um, kind of, there'll be probably a few stream of consciousness articles about Liverpool, which kind of act for therapy as me, as I'm very frustrated with them at the moment to come out in Anfield Index in the coming days. <laughs> <laughs> lovely, lovely, lovely. And then I'm also on a, at Azulfeeling on Twitter. Uh, I have a piece coming out about Brian Gill, who's um, one of the hottest talents in Spanish football at the moment. He's currently unknown at Ibar from Sevilla. It's kind of a statistical analysis, so keep an eye out for that. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for joining us, guys. Really appreciate it. It was a pleasure having you both. Thanks, Jasmine. Cheers. Thanks, John. Cheers. Uh, if you like the podcast, please um, leave a review and rate it. It really helps us with the algorithm and stuff to get it to, to more voices. Um, if you want us to discuss anything, feel free to message one of us on Twitter and we'll, uh, we'll be sure to oblige you. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope you join us next week. Uh, thanks and have a good week. Goodbye. Goodbye.